But then he also went on to point the people to Jesus who would baptise with the Holy Spirit. Now these 12 clearly saw themselves as disciples of Jesus, but obviously they had no knowledge of the person and work of that Holy Spirit. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 18, we heard about Apollos. He was an itinerant Jewish preacher and he came from the city of Alexandria, well known for all of its um, high teaching. And we know that whilst he taught accurately about Jesus from what he knew, clearly he did not understand how the resurrected Jesus had gifted his spirit to those who would call upon Jesus' name. But then we read in Acts 18.26 that Priscilla and Aquila, who had been on the road with Paul, were able to, as it says there, explain the way of God more adequately to him. And this no doubt opened his eyes to the fact that the risen Jesus had ascended to heaven as both Lord and Saviour and had sent his Holy Spirit. Perhaps these twelve were taught by Apollos. In any event, they were not alive to the Spirit and to his work. And what we do know about Paul is he always wanted the people who heard him to be in no doubt about anything when it came to Jesus and so no doubt he would have laid out the pieces of the jigsaw for the people. John's baptism, he said, was for the repentance of sin. But John had also told his hearers to believe in the one coming after him. See the name of Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah for whom they had been waiting. He was the one who had come and actually done everything necessary to save those who would call on his name. Jesus was the only name by which the people could be saved. And Jesus would not just be their saviour, but be their Lord as well. And he had sent his Holy Spirit on all who would repent and believe on him so they can live to glorify him as Lord of their lives. When the twelve hear this, they grasp this truth with both hands. And so Paul baptises them in the name of Jesus, laying his hands on them. And immediately there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and they prophesy. Now, some have tried to use this passage to start debates on people needing a second baptism. One in the Spirit. But this is not what's being said here. Remember Apollos, he didn't get a second baptism. He didn't need one. And in fact, this is the only time in the New Testament where a second baptism is recorded. The most important point here is that Paul is making it very clear that it is the name of Jesus that is all-powerful for the wiping away of sins and his power is evidenced in the work of his Holy Spirit in and through the lives of believers. The gift of tongues and of prophesying was evidence to all that the Spirit had now come on these men. And whilst this experience wasn't unique, it was also not part of everyone's coming to Jesus, either then or now. Now, since the time of Paul, Christians have only one baptism, that being into the name of Jesus. And it in and of itself is but an outward sign of the change that has gone on in the believer's heart. So the promise is clear. When you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. 
So the question for the believer today is not, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? For the answer to that question is always yes. But rather, do you know the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Now, at this question, many Christians start to get a bit nervous. Some start asking, how do I even know if I'm living in the power of the Holy Spirit? And um, if I'm not, then am I even a Christian? Now, it seems to me that many Australians are not very spiritually aware. Casper the ghost, not fe feeding gremlins after midnight, Ouija boards and Jumanji movie, that's about our level of knowledge or interest. The dreams and visions that we hear of in other cultures are often put down to anything from their lack of civilization to the belief that they're probably smoking or drinking something or perhaps they've been um, yeah, taking something a little too close to bedtime. And in many Christian circles, this Holy Spirit stuff is about miracles back then and not for us and not for now. And let's be clear, it's not a requirement that we must all speak in tongues or prophecy or prophesy as we sometimes think everybody did in the early church. But rather what we should see is all the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22 flowing in and through us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. All these should be evident as we become more and more Christ-like. And we know too that God has given his people spiritual gifts with the whole aim of building up the body and serving him and our neighbours. So the question perhaps for us is, am I conscious of being gifted and am I conscious of being prompted to use them to build others up? And for me, something I found is a good simple test for me is, does it ring true for me to say, Jesus Christ is both my Lord and Saviour? I think it's extremely comforting when you can say a re re resounding yes to that question, even when you might not be feeling very Christ-like. Because we can reflect on the truth in 1 Corinthians 12.3 that says, no one can truly say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And then I think it's often a helpful thing where we then relate that with baptism or confirmation because it can be a helpful marker for us to go back to in times of difficulty and doubt to remind ourselves that at that point God took hold of you and you took hold of him and his grip is one that will never be broken. But my challenge today is I wanted to see us go on past baptism. It's really, really eternally important to be able to say, I know Jesus and I know that he saved me. But you see, being alive to his Holy Spirit is about moving on. And as the way our church puts it is moving on in loving Jesus, in growing together, in speaking the good news and supporting others. So I ask, is my character becoming more Christ-like? Or would Paul look at me and be tempted to question if I even knew the power of the Holy Spirit in my life? 
And the question's not new. Generations ago, Spurgeon asked his congregations, and he would have said it much more powerfully than me, but are you living under his divine influence? Are you filled with his power? And then he went on to say, I'm afraid some professors will have to admit that they hardly know whether there be a Holy Ghost and others will have, will have to confess that though they've enjoyed a little of his saving work, yet they do not know much of his ennobling and sanctifying influence. Spurgeon talked about knowing the person and the work of the Holy Spirit as no academic or philosophical exercise. He says it's experiential. He said it was as sure as having received an electric shock. Life, priorities, character and behaviour all change. For him it was about moving on. Or as another scholar puts it, and I really like this, God always wants us to go deeper. Perhaps we have sipped where we might have drunk deeply. We have drunk deeply where we might have waded. And we have waded where we might have gone full out and plunged in. I know I'm often tempted to rest on the couch in the knowledge that I'm saved, but rather than wanting to get up and get in step with the Spirit and follow his lead day by day on the road to maturity, I'd rather sit back because I know it would require more understanding, more discipline and more effort. But you see, the Spirit prompts us to use our gifts. And yes, for some it's teaching, for some it's praying, for some it's that phone call or the word of encouragement or even hospitality. And it's important for us to understand it's not about what you don't have or can't do. It's all about faithfully and consistently doing what the Spirit is enabling you to do. And I think it's only selfishness that is the blind that gets in the way. So regardless of our age and our stage, and without trying in any way to compare the adequacy of our gifts, let us commit to moving on, from sipping to drinking, to deeply, from drinking deeply to wading and then going full out and plunging in. And we saw in today's reading that Paul was one who certainly plunged in. In chapter 19, verse 8, Paul tells us that he spoke boldly in the synagogue for three months not to mention his two years in um, the Hall of Tyrannus, seeking to open the eyes of of the Jews of Ephesus to the truth that it was Jesus who was the one on whom they must believe in order to be saved from their sins. And while some believed, many remained stuck in their traditions. They even started to publicly run Paul down and discredit the believers. And in fact, they drove him out of the synagogue. But does Paul stop? By no means. He simply moves to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he apparently used the time in the middle of the day when he and others would have stopped work, remembering he was a tent maker, and when the lecture hall was probably out for lunch so that he could move in and teach all who would listen. And he continued that practice for two years. And what was the outcome? All the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that everybody came to Paul's lectures. Rather, those who came to listen to Paul shared his testimony and 
teaching on their way home and in their hometowns. And so the gospel spread. And the amazing thing is that God chose to demonstrate and confirm the power of this new teaching by the way of some extraordinary miracles. Now, it's really interesting to see in verse 11 that Luke uses this term extraordinary miracles because I always thought by definition that miracles were kind of extraordinary. But here we see things happen that perhaps had not happened since the day of Jesus where the woman in Matthew 14.36 touched the edge of Jesus' robe and was healed. Or perhaps since the first days of the early church in Acts 5.15, where even the shadow of the Apostle Peter falling on uh, some of the sick might heal them. But in Ephesus we see people healed when the very sweatbands and aprons that Paul was using in his tent making were taken. And they were probably taken without his knowledge and certainly without Paul saying anything. So a person might be healed or freed from demon possession. And the point was that clearly the name of Jesus had authority and power. The message for these Ephesian Jews was one that their Messiah had come. He had won the promised victory over sin and death. The sick were being healed. The demons were being driven out. It was now time to believe in Jesus' name, for his name was the only one with the power to forgive sins and restore this relationship with their God. But, you know, Paul's message was not just for the Jews. There was a message for the Ephesian Gentiles. And that message was, this Jesus has power to save you as well. Now, we know that Ephesus was a city full of idol worship. And we heard all about that in the second reading um, today with the great Artemis of Ephesus. It was a city full of idol worship, of witchcraft and sorcery. Superstition and the belief in magic were rife. And so it seems that the things that we might consider miraculous perhaps were not even surprising to these Ephesians. But you see, the Ephesians were alive to the possibility that if they could just even take one of Paul's sweatbands and aprons and lay it on the sick or demon-possessed, then healing was possible. Even though their sorcery and magicians couldn't do it, they were alive to the power of the spirit world. And now they were acutely aware of the even more mighty power of the Holy Spirit working in and through Paul. And I think it's a wonderful testimony to God's mercy that he would choose to enable such a method of healing amongst such a pagan group. Because it fundamentally demonstrated a power even greater than the mighty Artemis of Ephesus of the great Ephesian magic or any of the sorcery that they had. It's starting to expose the meteor that was in the centre of the the temple of Artemis to just be a rock. And we've been told from the Old Testament times not to engage in sorcery and the world of supervision, yet we do well to be alive to the spirit world and more importantly to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Becoming alive to spiritual things, though, does not mean that we seek to use its power, authority and glory for ourselves because we're just about to see that can only lead to disaster. In verse 13, we see some Jews who were driving out evil spirits. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this in the, the scriptures. For example, we've heard about this happening in Mark 9, verses 38 to 40. You might recall that the disciples wanted to stop a man who was driving out demons because, as they said, he is not one of us. However, Jesus said, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Yet these Ephesians Jews, Ephesian Jews, they're not authentic followers of Jesus. Rather, they thought that they discovered a formula for the gaining of power and authority, for gaining personal glory and reward. So they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now these seven sons of um, the, the high priest Siva were doing exactly that one day when one of the evil spirits answered them and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Now in the Mark 9 passage I mentioned a minute ago, Jesus clearly seemed to know this unnamed disciple and saw him as for us. Yet in Ephesus, these sons of Siva, they had no relationship with Jesus and indeed no relationship with Paul, who was the speaker of the word. And so their power to cast out demons is not a gift from God. When they try to use this formula for casting out demons, and by the way, it seems that it had sometime worked for them in the past, when they tried to use it on this particular demon, they were badly beaten by the man who was demon-possessed. <coughs> <coughs> so the warning in, for, to those in Ephesus was clear, as it is to us today. The spiritual world is real, and it's one of power, one that can't be ignored, but it's not one with which we should trifle. While some think that they might be able to control the spirit world, a world of superstition and sorcery, it can be a very dark and scary place and one where we can find ourselves quickly out of our depth. And I think you'll agree that the sons of Siva got off very light, lightly with a beating as they ran from the house bleeding and naked. In Luke 11:25, we read how a man had an evil spirit exercised but clearly did nothing to change his life. And the end result was the evil spirit returned and brought with him seven more evil spirits, even more wicked than the first, to repossess the man. The spirit world is not to be taken lightly. And many Ephesians seem to get the message, or at least they developed a healthier insight into the spirit world. And the outcome was that the name of Jesus came to be held in high honour. They realised Paul's God could see through to the heart and that he had absolute power in the spiritual realm. As a result, those who practised sorcery and magic came and openly burned their books 
And as John sort of talked about, 50,000 days wages. And some have calculated that as more than a million dollars if you want to put it in dollar terms. Not only this, but perhaps more importantly, they came confessing their deeds done in secret, realising that the God of the universe sees all. Now, perhaps we have things that we've kept secret, sinful ways that we harbour because we alone know them. They might be books, but they may also be tapes or statues or charms or games or habits or shows, the things that can lead us astray. And as Spurgeon says, you have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. Is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come to trust in him, you will make short work of it. Have done with it and have done with it forever. And the wash-up of Paul's time in Ephesus? The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So, what are we to make of this passage? It's possible that there are those who um, have not gone past those first vital truths that I'm a sinner and I need saving and that Jesus is the only one who can save me. Now, I've got to say, it is so great to at least get to that point. But having got to that point, it is then time to move on in the power of the Holy Spirit. Except for the Holy Spirit, I think many of us would be comfortable just saying, oh, I'm saved, every man, woman and child for themselves. Just leave me alone so I can get on with my struggles. But we've been told in Ephesians 6.12, that our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the power of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, we need the spirit and we need to know that the spiritual world exists. We need to know that the Holy Spirit is given to each of us as a believer and the spirit's work is to guide us into all truth to enable us to see as Jesus as both our Saviour and our Lord. The Spirit enables us to bear fruit and he gives us gifts that we need to please the living God. We also need to know that we live in a dark world where there are evil spirits, sorcerers and magic and those who would claim to have power in the spiritual realm. We do well to have nothing to do with these. Rather, our job is to stay in step with the Holy Spirit because he will always point us towards Jesus. And if we've come from a past that's delved into this dark world, it's time to renounce it now and bring it from the darkness into the light. Likewise, we must see the desire of Satan it is, to can help, it is to want us to continue to shut off parts of our lives and keep them from ourselves and hide them from the light of Jesus so we can keep our own secret sinful desires. But we're being called on today to repent of these sinful ways and rather seek to live in the light of Jesus. Now, if you're in any doubt as to whether you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit when you believed, Doubt no more, 
because God is faithful and he says, when you believe, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So ask yourself this question. Do I believe in my heart and will I confess with my lips that Jesus Christ is Saviour and Lord? It is the work of the Holy Spirit to guide us into this truth and confirm it in us. And I trust as I say this that this truth wells up inside of you right now for that is the work of the Spirit confirming in you that Jesus Christ is your Saviour and Lord. If not, but you desire it, then join with the jailer from the story from Acts 16 and ask, what must I do to be saved? Do it today. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will receive his promised Holy Spirit. Then, rather than sweating any further, start thinking and praying about getting in step with the Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit flows and you'll develop that desire to use the gifts that have been given to you in the service of your God and others. To show you how old I am, some years ago, songwriter Keith Green sang of the church being asleep in the light. It was about being saved but not then going on and living as the children keen to delight their heavenly father. Today, can I say, let's not be asleep in the light, but rather let's move on in the spirit not just sipping or even drinking deeply, not even waiting, but rather going full out and plunging in so we can delight our Heavenly Father at every step. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that because you love us, you sent your Holy Spirit so that we might know you better, that we also might know truth and that we might walk in it. We thank you, Father, that you give us gifts so that we're able to serve you faithfully and also serve and encourage and build up each other as the body of Christ. And Father, we thank you most of all that the Holy Spirit keeps reminding us that you have your grip on us and that Jesus' name is all-powerful to forgive sins. Father, we thank you that we're yours for eternity and we ask that you would help us remove all doubt from our lives that we are saved and we are yours and that we might indeed move on in the spirit and we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen.